Welcome to the Real Estate Syndication Show. Whether you are a seasoned investor or building a new real estate business, this is the show for you. Whitney Sewell talks to top experts in the business. Our goal is to help you master real estate syndication. And now your host, Whitney Sewell. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, our guest is Scott Lewis. Thanks for being on the show again, Scott. Thank you very much, Whitney. Glad to be here. Scott was on the show. It was show number WS20. So way back. But I would encourage you to go back and listen to that episode and learn a little more about Scott and the Spartan Investment Group. And uh, we've had actually all their team members on the show. And so you can learn about uh, each of their team members and what their focus is and how they work together. It's a very interesting way to hear about different team members and why each one's important. But a little bit about Scott. He's a co-founder and CEO of Spartan Investment Group, LLC, but also known as SIG. And he's led several successful real estate developments ranging from single family flips to raw land development. And to date, SIG has completed $6 million in development projects and has $9 million more underway and raised over $7 million in private equity. He leads the Spartan team by overseeing all operations and business activities to ensure they produce the desired results and are consistent with the overall strategy and mission. I also heard Scott speak in Denver at the Best Real Estate Investing Conference by Joe Farrellis, and it was great to see you there, Scott, and other team members and actually meet some of them in person. But anyway, pleasure to see you there. Pleasure to have you on the show. Give us a little more about your focus right now, Scott, and and let's dive into some of these topics like development. You know, I get questions all the time about development and, and syndicating a development. You're the guy that's going to help us today understand some of that. Outstanding. And thank you, Whitney. Yes, syndicating a development. The first question you got to ask yourself is, do you want to suffer through you know, at least at a minimum, probably two years of a constant roller coaster ride of ups and downs as you move through the development process, which I'll touch in a little bit through the course of this show. It really is a roller coaster ride. If you're not good with kind of ups and downs, you might want to really think hard about whether you want to do a development. But I think really the place to start is what, what is development and how does that differ from, say, just regular doing a deal? So development really is taking a piece of raw land that has absolutely nothing on it sticks, trees, whatever, and going through what's called the entitlement phase to get it ready to go ahead and build whatever you're going to build. At Spartan Investment Group, we focus on self-storage. That's what we look for. But really, the horizontal phase of the development, that's taking the raw land and moving it through the bureaucratic process of whatever jurisdiction you're in, to get all of the necessary entitlements. And what entitlements are is just the allowances to build what you want to build. It is almost virtually the same for any asset class. It doesn't matter if it's multifamily, a car wash, storage, what have you. It's working with the jurisdiction to walk through all of their processes to get approvals to go ahead and then go vertical and build. So, you know, you talked about like the entitlement and horizontal phase and walking through, you know, this with the city or the locals, that jurisdiction. And I can imagine just oh, the back and forth and trying to figure out, make sure everybody's happy with what's going on. It seems very difficult. It is. And by difficult, we call it the BS bucket. You have to be willing to deal with all kinds of 
various stakeholders and personalities and really a lot of nonsense as you're moving through the process. Most jurisdictions, they will publish timelines for approvals on whatever you're trying to get approved. In most jurisdictions, they don't adhere to it. It's just kind of willy-nilly. And as a developer, it's incredibly frustrating because we are the ones out here in the field with you know, sometimes millions of dollars riding on the line. And then you know, just to be very kind of whimsical on timelines is sometimes incredibly frustrating. But you have to know that at the end of the day, you know, the, whatever jurisdiction you're dealing with, they have a job to do. And that's to make sure that you build a project that's not only safe, but aligns with the overall, not only the politician's vision for the future, but also the citizen's vision of that jurisdiction for the future, which is why it can take so long. And then there's just a lot of different agencies out there. And it really depends on your project. We've got a raw land development going on in Seattle, just outside of Seattle, Washington. And in the state of Washington, there is a lot of different stakeholder groups. And on this particular piece of dirt, there's some wetlands in there, which is a federally protected water of the United States. That's the actual term for it, which adds a whole nother layer of complexion in dealing with the Army Corps of Engineers. It's a process. But here's the thing about development. like, Why do you want to do it? So when you look at your regular kind of value-add deal, where you go in and if you're a multifamily guy, you go in, you put some new stoves in, you paint, you throw some new carpet down, and you might add 25, 30, you crush it 40% of value to the project. With development, you can add several hundred percent of value. Now that's risk-adjusted, so there's a lot of risk for that. But really, people do development because the upside is incredibly up, but the risk is there as well. Yeah, it just seems like a... As far as entering the development world, it seems like almost another business. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things that carry over, but it's like there's so much more there that I feel like I, I would need to focus on and, and educate myself about before I said, okay, do I really want to jump into the development space? There is. For all of your listeners, I would be very, very, very careful jumping into a large development without having a decent amount of experience or if you've got education background. If you've worked for a larger company that has done it, then that could get you what you need to know. Really, what eliminates risk in development is due diligence. At Spartan, we have a due diligence checklist that has 375 items on it. We've been told that that's one of the most exhaustive lists of due diligence items that folks have seen. And it's there because you know both me being an Army guy and my co-founder, Ryan, being a pilot, we're just checklist fanatic. Everything we do is checklists. And it's one of those things that if you miss one of those boxes, it can be catastrophic. Now, even if you're buying a regular property, there's still a good amount of due diligence that goes in. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't do that. Like a phase one environmental, we're purchasing an existing facility right now. It's a storage facility, but we still have phase one because you never know what, what could be underneath there. So just because something is built does not mean that you don't have development risk from geotech, from phase one environmental in those various studies that we would do right up front on a development phase. If you've got bad soils under your facility and you don't do a geotech, you could be buying a facility that's sinking. Now, the probability of that's pretty low, but it's there. And if you're spending multiple millions of dollars on a facility, that's a big deal. Phase one, if you buy a facility and there's underground storage tanks down there that you didn't know about because you didn't do a phase one because you're like, oh, well, they must have done one or they have an existing facility, so there can't be anything wrong. If those tanks are down there and you buy it, you own it. So if you have to do environmental cleanup, it can be disastrous to your facilities. Development definitely has more upfront, 
it has some of the very same things that you know, buying an existing facility for a value add play would have. You know, you're talking about that, like a phase one or phase two. Could you just tell us what that, you know, if the listener that hasn't heard that before, they're thinking, no, wait a minute, what's he talking about phase one? What does that mean? So phase one is referencing an environmental inspection. I don't know the ins and outs of what the scientists and engineers do when they go out, but they test the land to make sure that there was no environmental hazard like underground storage tanks. Like, was this thing a gas station in 1945 that's been torn down and the soil's a disaster? Or there's an old gas storage tank down there. Was this a brownfield being an environmentally contaminated area? Was this a military base in training for World War I and that had all kinds of lead contamination from ammunition? Those are just some that could have the environmental issues down there. And it's not a big deal. Some people super scared about a phase of a failed phase one. Well, it's really not a big deal because you can fix most things. And if your phase one environmental fails, then you go to a phase two environmental, which is just a much more rigorous test. And there's probably folks out there that are far more versed in what those tests actually encounter. But even if a phase two fails, there's plenty of people that take on brownfields, which are disastrously contaminated areas, and they go out and they do whatever mitigation and mediation that they have to to get that back to where it's a safe place to develop. And it's just, it's all about negotiating with the seller. If your phase one fails, well, don't necessarily walk away from your deal. Like, get a contractor out there, like, understand the cost, scope, and risk of mitigating whatever problem was there, and then just negotiate a lower price. The seller wants to sell, you want to buy, let's figure it out how to work it. I like that a lot. I appreciate you saying that. So like when you find problems or you find those fuel tanks that you didn't know that were there, don't just immediately write it off. Like let's get an expert out here and let's ask, let's figure out what it's going to cost to fix it or whatever it's going to take to make this happen. If you pass on it, the next person that's going to try to buy it or go through the due diligence, hopefully they're going to find the same thing. And then that seller, you might as well bring that to the seller and show them this is what it's going to cost. And hopefully they'll work with you. What we've found, so I'll be completely honest, never had failed environmental inspection. We have had some geotech issues and that's geotechnical. It's basically looking at the soils and the underground geology of your site. We have had some problematic soils. Really all that is is additional concrete work, additional shoring work or footing work for the particular facility. It drives the cost up. I mean, you can basically build on anything. The capital of the United States is literally sinking because it's built in a swamp, right? Now it's sinking very, very slowly and they're doing a lot of work to renovate that, but it is sinking like that's so the story goes. But you can basically build on almost anything. It's just the amount of work and the amount of cost that will go into it. Now, sometimes those failed inspections will cause a project to become insolvent because the cost will be so great that the project no longer pencils. But that's just the name of the game. That's when, when you're getting into development, those are, they're called pursuit risks. And the, the costs associated with them are called pursuit costs. And as a developer, you have to ensure that you, know, you sock some percentage of your operating capital away for failed pursuit costs. So those folks that are out there that are thinking about doing development, just make sure you've got enough sucked away that you can go after a couple of these deals because no matter what, your due diligence is probably going to cost you at a minimum 5000 bucks if you find a problem right away. Otherwise, it can be upwards of $25,000, $40,000 into the due diligence project before you hit a snag. 
I meant to ask you too, Scott, or I wanted to ask you, you know, just about this due diligence checklist that you talked about over 300 points. And how do you start to develop something like that? I know people have asked me that, and I know listeners probably wonder, wait a minute, where do I even start to make sure that I have the most exhaustive list that I can have, you know, to make sure I'm checking all those boxes like you all have? Where did you start and how did you create something like that? We started by identifying the high level, quote unquote, buckets or categories in which we want to assess due diligence. So like one of ours is zoning. So when you're doing development, the zoning code is one of the most important things to understand. So when we went and we looked at zoning, we started just listing off all the different things that we had learned over the years about zoning. We also then just went out to Google and we looked at maybe seven to 10 different checklists for the various areas of due diligence on zoning. And everybody has a different checklist. So our checklist of 300 plus items is kind of an amalgamation of probably 30 or 40 different checklists that we went out and found in all these different categories. And then just started like really kind of putting them together and tailoring them to kind of... Are you a new or sophisticated investor wanting to learn how to operate a successful syndication business? For life-changing training from the nation's leading syndication expert, my friend Vinny Chopra has the training you need. Text LEARN, L-E-A-R-N, to 474747. Our methodologies and the way that we develop. Awesome. So now that we got our list, you, know, you talked about the zone and you talked about different things. Maybe you could highlight a few things that when doing a development that you all have run into that we wouldn't normally think of that now you know you're going to check. Maybe you've learned recently a few things that you're going to check on every deal that you didn't know on the first couple of developments or when you first got started. What would those be? Yeah, great question. So there's a concept called matter of right. So in the zoning code, there are different classes and every jurisdiction does this different. And there's different classes or categories or however they decide to call them. It's all semantics, but it all means the same thing. And each one of those classes or categories has what is allowed and the nuances with what's allowed, like the setbacks, the amount of impermeable surface that you're allowed to have. There's a concept in there called matter of right, which means that what you want to do for your piece of dirt is allowable by the zoning code. It doesn't require what's called a conditional use or special use permit. The vernacular is different in every jurisdiction. Whenever you introduce a conditional use or special use permit, there is a level of risk that I would say at a minimum quadruples because then when you're going through the process for a conditional use or special use, it really is dependent on the, I'll say the, the whims of both the jurisdiction and the surrounding public because you have to hold public hearings. And anytime you introduce the public into it, you can introduce a lot of variable risk that you cannot control. So one of the deals that we did very, very early on, and we didn't control this deal. This was a deal we invested in, but it was a ground up development. And we did not do enough due diligence to ensure that it was matter of right versus conditional use. So this deal ended up being a conditional use. And this other sponsor didn't do the level of due diligence that they needed to do. So we learned very, very quickly on the number one thing that we look at right out of the gate is whether 
our project on this piece of dirt is a matter of right or conditional use. Because unfortunately, we went into the deal thinking it was matter of right when the sponsor got it wrong and it was conditional use. So instead of a six to nine month turnaround, we're now going on three years. Wow. That's a big difference. I mean, you said six to nine month turnover. Now you're going on three years. So that changes things drastically. It does. And that's the number one lesson that we learned. This person was a very, I'll say, close to us. So unfortunately, and my wife and I are investors in this deal. Like I said, we're not sponsors of this deal. We did not do the level of our own due diligence. So for the investors that are listening, make sure that you do your own due diligence and don't just take the sponsor's word for it. Dig into all due diligence documents that they have. That's interesting. So as an investor then, what kind of due diligence documents or questions should we be asking of the sponsor or operator? I'll kind of jump back and forth as the sponsor and then as the investor for a development play. As an investor, the number one thing you want to make sure if you want to verify without a shred of doubt of whether that project is going to be matter of right or it's going to require conditional use or special use or some other type of approvals outside of matter of right. That is everything for the development project. Nothing else matters. The finances don't matter. The amazing marketing materials don't matter. If you don't understand if it's matter of right or some other type of approval process, you're going to get yourself into a situation in which you could have a project that's much, much longer on your hands than what you're anticipating. And if the sponsor hasn't figured that out, then I would honestly, in hindsight, I would never have invested in this deal with this particular sponsor and I will never give him another dollar. Now, part of it's on us. We own that amount of accountability that we didn't do that. So that's why I'm stressing it. From the sponsor's side of the house, for us, we make sure that our investors, especially on a development project, have access to all of the zoning reports that we've pulled. We do a zoning report for any development that we do, and we provide that zoning report. Generally, before we even bring investors into the deal, we've done some of the due diligence already. Usually the phase one, geotech, and any of the other studies that are required. Make sure you provide your investors with copies of those. Most investors won't read them. I give them to a civil engineer and ask them to read through them real quick. You know, it'll cost you a couple hundred bucks, but a couple hundred bucks spent on that due diligence is a lot less grief than getting into a deal that then goes sideways on you. So I would say that's from an investor side of the point, the understanding of the underlying zoning. And then from a sponsor standpoint, just make sure that you provide your investors the information that they need to make an informed decision. I like how you talked about you all already have some of these documents or will have already begun the process before you approach investors. And so I I think on many levels that shows you all are obviously you're trying to be transparent, shows you're committed to the deal, shows you are you're already invested. You know, there's already an alignment of interest before you ever approach the investor. Yeah. So there's a lot of talk about co-invest from the investor side of the house. And as an investor, for me, I'll be completely honest. I really don't care if the sponsor's putting money in the deal or not. I know, especially on a development side of the house, and especially if that sponsor is bringing a loan to the table, that that sponsor is putting an awful lot on the line. Normally, I'm a 50 to 100 grand guy. That's usually what I do per deal, unless it's a smashing deal, and then I might do more. If they've done it right, they probably have, by the time they're asking me for money, they probably have at least 50 grand in that with that risk for those pursuit costs. 
Because if a sponsor's done it right, and this is what Spartan Investment Group does, is we make sure that we are really confident that this deal is going to go before we take a dollar from our investors. So on that Black Diamond deal, we probably had a quarter million dollars of our money into the deal before we took investor capital. Most of that was paid back out with for expenses, but all of that was at risk until we got comfortable enough that like, okay, this project's going to go. We've got our conditional use approval. That was not a matter of right deal. And we're ready to bring investors in. I like that a lot. And unfortunately, we're running almost out of time, Scott, but leave us with a few things that we need to know about development deals or if we're going to invest in a development deal or any closing thoughts about that specifically before we, we have a few final questions. Just two points for each side of the house. As a sponsor, get up and down. And also be prepared that any jurisdictional timeline you get, my recommendation when you're putting your schedule together would be to almost double whatever timeline is put out there for jurisdiction. They almost never adhere to it. So do not use them as they stand and putting together your timeline. For investors, be ready to go for that same ride. Be ready for the product to take longer and give the sponsor a break. If that sponsor is communicating to you, I will say that the one that we got sideways was not. And then I would say that then do whatever you need to do to get that sponsor's attention. But if they're communicating regularly and you're kept, and you're kept like in the light and you know what's going on, then give them a break because they're often at the whim of a lot of different stakeholders in which they're trying to control. So if you're getting into a development play, the returns are going to be representative of the risk of the deal. Do not go into a development play thinking it's going to be smooth sailing because it will not be. Well, Scott, what's the number one thing you'd say has contributed to your success? We learned early to understand zoning code. We had a couple of projects that back in our residential days, that's one of the things that we focused on is knowing the underlying zoning. And we had a couple of projects that we were able to buy on a severe discount because the seller did not understand the zoning that the project had. And we repurposed it for something that was much higher and better and more valuable. So that was like understanding that zoning code was really pivotal in our success and not getting into something that we didn't understand other than that investment, which was not ours. So Nice. And, and is there a way that you all have recently improved your business that we could all apply to ours? The number one thing that we've really done lately to improve our business is we've been pretty process oriented kind of in the past. But what we've really done lately is integrated some of our technology with our processes, with connecting some of our different systems like Podio to our Trello or our Smartsheet accounts to just have more seamless project management. So while we had these as independent standalone systems, really kind of integrating them so they all talk to one another has really kind of helped us out lately. Nice. Nice. And how do you like to give back? I'm not really a fan of giving money to charity. I like to give my time to helping folks. And one of the things I do here in the Colorado area is I coach the local middle school mountain biking team. They're, they just got the team started and they're trying to get kids really interested in mountain biking. They they were struggling to get parents and my wife and I don't have kids, but we want to see them succeed. So, you know, I volunteer in the summers coaching middle school mountain bikers. That's awesome. I, I haven't heard anybody that does that before. That's awesome. And uh, especially with those young ones and you're a great example for them. So I appreciate that. And Scott, tell the listeners how they can learn more about you and Spartan Investment Group. Yeah, I can be reached at scott at spartan-investors.com. 
And then your listeners can check us out at www.spartan-investors.com. Great. Scott, thank you again for your time and expertise and just going through just some parts of the development process that most of us wouldn't know. I mean, it's not my focus. So it's great in learning how important like the zoning code and how unimportant sometimes the timeline or that they give you is going to be, or you need to double it just as far as on the investor side and on the sponsor side. I just really appreciate your time. Hope the listeners will go and look at Scott's website and Spartan Investment Group and look at them and also go to LifeBridge Capital and connect with me. I'd love to have a call with you and then go to the Real Estate Syndication Show on Facebook so we can all learn from experts like Scott and his team and grow our business together. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Syndication Show brought to you by LifeBridge Capital. LifeBridge Capital works with investors nationwide to invest in real estate while also donating 50% of its profits to assist parents who are committing to adoption. LifeBridge Capital, making a difference, one investor and one child at a time. Connect online at www.lifebridgecapital.com for free material and videos to further your success. 